the Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, episode 522 for Monday, October 6th, 2014. Greetings, folks, and welcome. The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in questions, cool stuff found, and tips. We answer your questions. We share your tips. We pile up your cool stuff found for a cool stuff found episode, but that's not today yet. But it is piling up again. So probably soon. Sponsor for this episode is Smile at smilesoftware.com. We will talk more about their text expander Touch 3 with its custom keyboard later in this show here in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. Here in Fearful, Connecticut, John F. Braun. I am, uh, I realized that as I was saying who I was and where I was, that I actually wasn't certain about my location. Uh, like I paused briefly in my own head. I don't know if you heard it, but I, I paused and I wasn't sure that I was in Durham. Like I'm, as I'm saying it, I'm going, no, that's not right. Of course it's right. Um, so that if, if that lays a foundation for where the rest of this episode is going to go, uh, perhaps that's, that's fair warning. I don't know. It's weird doing the show midday on a Monday. Yeah. Well, you were here last week, so I can understand your disorientation. Yes, that's right. What? Hello? That's right. I was there. Yeah. That was part of the, well, I traveled down and then, yeah, that was fun though. We, John uh, and I went to Pepcom digital. Oh no. Holiday spectacular. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, saw all kinds of cool stuff. Do you, do you have any any one cool thing that you want to want to talk about on this episode, John? Before we pile them up for a cool stuff found show. Nah, I st- still got to uh, still got to go through the pile of stuff. I know. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and it was interesting. You know, it it and I'm sure this is commonplace for the holiday spectacular show. There weren't a lot of there were a lot of demos, but most people that were showing off things that actually had things to show off for the you know for the the upcoming holiday season. Uh, if they had items at all, they were things that had literally been delivered like to the, the, the hall where the, the event was. So they didn't have very many of them, uh, you know, like parrots, new, new headphones. They, the, like the folks there hadn't seen them until they arrived, um, at the event. They all kind of arrived simultaneously from different locations. So lots of that stuff. So lots, lots of things for you and I to check out coming soon, I think is, is, uh, or arriving soon. They've been discussed, but we don't have them in our hands yet. Speaking of things that we have in our hands, John, iOS eight is something we have in our hands. Don't you think? Uh, yeah. Yeah. For the most part, uh, I'd say I'm pretty happy with it. I think I had, uh, one oddity that they fixed. I, I had a keyboard <clears throat> lock up on me. Oh, that's not good. Yeah, no, was it the, uh, yeah, and I don't know if it was the app hadn't been updated or what. Okay. But no, I was, uh, I was at the library, you know, deciding on, uh, something to, uh, to borrow. Sure. Uh, movie. As, as one does. And, and I usually go to, uh, run the IMDB app. Um, uh, and so I started typing in the name of a movie and, uh, when I got to a certain character, the flag for it on the keyboard, uh, didn't go away and it just kind of wedged and I'm like, Hmm, that's annoying. But, but that but, only yeah, happened in that app. Yeah, so I think it was. Uh, so I don't think it was a general keyboard problem. I think it was a sure. problem that they had not yet 
or they had some issue that they have since fixed. Oh, that's works fine. Well, that's good. Did um, it was this with a with the stock Apple keyboard or one of the custom iOS keyboards? Um, I'm not doing any custom keyboards yet, so uh-huh. stock keyboard. Well, that, that answers that question. Yeah. All right. Um, you know, let's let's do this. Let's talk about our first sponsor now that we're on the uh, custom keyboard thing because I think the first one you'd want to try out, John, uh, is the one from our sponsor, Smile. And that is uh, Text Expander Touch. Text Expander Touch 3 uh, actually has its own custom keyboard that comes with uh, or that that works in any app in iOS 8. Now, the, the, you may ask, why would uh, why would I want that? Well, here's the way it works. This is this is very cool. Text Expander. Uh, is an app that we've had on our Macs for a long time. We've had on our iOS devices for almost as long of a time. Uh, and the way that it works is you create snippets uh, inside Text Expander. Uh, and and these can be like big, long uh, bits of text or tiny little bits of text. And they're smart. They they aren't just it's not just like you, you pump in a dumb uh, bit of, you know, a big blob of text and then assign it a shortcut. You can do that. That works totally fine, and I have probably a hundred of them, if not more. Uh, I, may, I may not even want to know how many snippets I have, but uh, but anyway, uh, it, you can you can create those, and they're fine. But where it gets really cool is when you have add some logic to these snippets, like you say, insert you know have this bit of text, but insert the date here, or insert the name of the person that I'm writing this email to, right? Or um, uh, you know, or like, like I, I do with, uh, with Mac Geekab all the time, I have to put in the link to the, uh, episode, right. And like the, the actual MP3 and M4A files that, 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 that you folks download. And I have to put those in, uh, every time. And I don't want to screw it up because there's, you know, it's like, I got to type in the HTTP colon slash slash, and then, you know, uh, MP3 dot Mac right. There's the whole thing. And so I used to just go and copy the one from the previous week and edit it. But what instead what I did was I made a text expander snippet that's smart. And what it does is I type my little shortcut MGG MP3 and it expands out the whole file name. Uh, except we, we date stamp each file name. It's, you know, like this one will be MGG two zero one four one zero zero six for October 6th. And, um, uh, and then dot MP3. So I have it add the dot MP3, but I just have it be MGG two zero one four dot MP3. And then because text expander is smart, I have it back up the cursor to sit right after the two zero one four. So all I do is type comma MGG MP3. And then as soon as it expands, I type one zero zero six and I'm done. That's it. And, and so these kind of smart little snippets are awesome. And it's, that's what text expander does. Here's the thing. Not only does Text Expander Touch allow you to sync your snippets, uh, it uses Dropbox, which makes life really easy, and you don't have to monkey around with any other, you know, cloud uh, services that might be less functional on iOS eight. Um, no names mentioned, Apple. Um, you know, so it syncs with Dropbox, which is great. So you create your snippets on the Mac, and it syncs them with iOS. But now, because iOS eight does allow these custom keyboards. Uh, it used to be that you couldn't get text expander snippets into an app unless the developer went out of their way to inherit the text expander code base into their app. Well, now with this custom keyboard that text expander touch three ships with, you have 
this their keyboard in any app and it reads their snippets. So every app that has a keyboard now has the text expander touch keyboard in it, which is just freaking awesome. And I love it and I use it all the time. It really has changed the way I'm able to use text expander on, on iOS because it, you know, it used to be, you'd have to either have an app that supported it or you, or you launch the, the, the text expander app and do your snippets and then copy and paste that in. And that worked, but obviously having it literally at your fingertips is, uh, is really where you want it. So check it out. This is text expander touch three. Obviously it's a, an iOS uh, and it's an iOS app, which means you get it from the uh, app store. And the Mac equivalent is also available there. And you can check all of it out from our good friends at smilesoftware.com. So thanks to the folks at Smile for not only sponsoring this show and this episode, but for creating this and having it available, uh, you know, on day one with, uh, with iOS 8. So go check it out. All right, John. Now that we know about that, let's move on to something else in iOS 8, shall we? Peter has an interesting question, which actually gave me some pause as, uh, as I was prepping the show earlier. He says, I have just noticed that the block cookies choice in or list of choices in the Safari settings in iOS 8 are different from those in iOS 7. In addition to always block and always allow, there are uh, allow from current website only and allow from the websites I visit. Uh, I find these choices confusing and I do too, Peter, as I was going to answer your question, I'm like, Oh no, this is very easy. Uh, and then I sort of stopped because I had to interpret what I think they're doing here. Now, uh, if I've gotten this wrong and you folks know better than me, please, as always tell, or John, if you know that I've gotten it wrong, that's great. But so let's go in order. Apple has them listed in this order. And I think, uh, the reason is it goes from most restrictive to least restrictive. So at the uh, very top of the list is always block. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. No cookies are going to make it through. Allow from current website only. I, I, I believe based on intuition and also some rudimentary testing that this only allows cookies from the very domain that you're currently visiting. For example, if you're on MacObserver.com and we have a piece of Twitter.com, you know, Twitter's JavaScript there that wants to set a Twitter.com cookie, it will not be uh, allowed. The Twitter cookie won't be allowed because it's not a MacObserver.com cookie. Uh, and so I, that's what allow from current website only means. Uh, the next one is allow from websites I visit. So now let's use that same example. Uh, if you had previously visited twitter.com and logged in, well then now, yes, it will allow that twitter.com cookie to be set because it is a website that you have visited directly previously. And then, uh, the third one is, and I think that's a really good thing. I, I like that choice because there's so many different interactions. You know, you've got Facebook logins and Twitter logins at different places, including Mac Observer, right? And and you're in, in and that's you know allowing those things to interact uh, is a good thing. You, you know, you you want that. It's 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 built to make your web browsing experience better. Um, and I believe that's the default: the allow from websites I visit. Uh, and then, of course, the uh, least restrictive option, the fourth one, is always allow, which just Let's every cookie in, which also really isn't that bad. And honestly, if you're having any trouble 
That's where I leave mine because it's way easier than trying to deal with, oh, wait, yeah, okay, it blocked this one because of, oh, that's so stupid. Just set it on always allow. That's what I do. How about you, John? Um, well, first off, I notice it is slightly different now. Yeah, so they add another choice when, when you compare it to Safari on, on the Mac, which only has three choices. Is that true of Yosemite too? Uh, I don't know because I'm not running. Yosemite. Oh, you're not. Oh, I thought you were. Okay. I, yeah, I did not check and that. I, I installed it and I took a look, but, um, and it's on its own separate drive. You know, I'm not running sure. it on a production. Or well, it's time to run it production, right? Cause the golden master's out. So it's, yeah. it's time for uh, you and I to, to, to dig in, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah. 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 Well, Safari now has never always end from third parties and advertisers, which I think pretty much mirrors. So, uh, so we have slow, slow down. Level. It has block never, block always, and block only from third party advertisers. Right. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just wanted to give it context. That's all. Right. And actually, the way I'm set up, uh, or, or it looks like it defaults to allow from websites I visit, which uh, seems reasonable to me. Yeah. Uh, on iOS. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. How about yeah, you? What do you what do you leave your cookie thing set to, John? Um, right now, I have it set on uh, on iOS. Yeah, I have it on allow from websites I visit. And how about on your Mac? Uh, block from third parties and advertisers. Yeah, see, that's where it starts to get into trouble because you're going to be blocking those you know login cookies that you're getting from third party login services that you may actually want to use. And we run into that a lot where people say, oh, this isn't working. It's like, well, yeah, you know, you've, you've got your browser set to block that. And, and I don't, that's, that's the default on the Mac currently. And I, so I don't blame users, but it's like, you know, it's good. Security is a good thing. You, but being aware of the security choices that you have either made or that have been made for you is even better. Yeah, I haven't. Uh, yeah, I'm comfortable leaving it at that setting. Though I have had one or two cases. Um, one is one of my local utilities where they come up and say, "Hey, your your cookie policy is too restrictive. We want to put a cookie here to help authenticate you in the future." So yeah. at that point, I'll set it to block never. Let them do their thing, then switch it back. Yeah, I just leave it on block never. Okay. Yeah, I, which I think is the default in Firefox, right? I mean, I think every other browser does doesn't just allows everything, which is really a good thing. There's so little that can be done. That's bad by letting someone set a cookie. They, they got a really bad rap a long time ago, and I'm not sure why it's just a piece of data. Listen, here's the way cookies work. Cookies are a piece of data that is set by a website and left behind on your computer. That sounds bad, but really that's all that it is. It's not a piece of code. Uh, it cannot run. It is data that the website has determined it wants to save uh, on your computer. Here's the thing. Cookies can only be read by the domain that is specified in the cookie to be allowed to read them. And cookies can only set cookies from or websites can only set cookies from their own domain. So like if you visit MacObserver.com and I want to set uh, a, um, uh, uh, I don't know, you know, a Microsoft.com cookie. We can't because we're not Microsoft.com. We have no domain at Microsoft.com. You are not visiting Microsoft.com. We cannot set that, nor can we read anything from Microsoft.com so unless Microsoft sets their cookie to be readable by everybody. And I don't even know if you can do that. Maybe you can, uh, but no one does. So really it's just a bunch of settings that are out there. It's just not that bad. Yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, it's just, you know. 
at worst, it means that somebody could track you, you know, maybe if, yeah. if the, well, if the website that. you're visiting allows that other website to track you through it. So. Right. And for that, both under iOS uh, and OS 10, uh, there is now an option within Safari for website tracking. And you can say, uh, please do not. Yeah, but that's only nobody. Nobody actually follows that. Uh, that, well, no, it's a do not track header that you set that your browser, like when your browser requests uh, a resource, you know, either a, a web page or an image or whatever from a uh, a server, it sends a bunch of headers in the, in the initial request. And one of them is, you know, what what uh, what kind of browser it is so that, that if there is some very controls happening on the other end, it can say, oh, well, you're a mobile browser. I'm going to send you this version instead of that version, which is sort of stupid you should do responsive design but but that's just an example and it, like those websites that you visit that say oh these only work in in ie and you must be running ie and then you go into the develop menu in safari and set your user agent to internet explorer and then magically the website works even though you're still in safari that's the kind of thing where the website's reading or the server is reading the uh the header you can set a header that says please don't track me that's all that option does in iOS and Safari is sets the do not track header. So if a website honors it, great. And if the website doesn't, you still get tracked. It's, it's just how it works. <laughs> so it's, mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, it's like, I, I would think that the people that would honor that are the people that I would have no trouble letting track me in the first place. <laughs> and the people that don't mm -hmm. honor it, well, that they're the ones that, you know, that's my feeling. Right. I mean, Am I, mm -hmm. am I being crazy? It's Monday afternoon. I don't know. Moving on to Leslie, John. Yeah, here's a good one. Yeah, one go. of these uh, mysterious things that all of a sudden appear in iOS 8. But um, Leslie asks, in iOS 8, when you double tap on the home button, you get bubbles with faces of your favorites and recents. Is there a way of turning one or both of these off? So uh, two things. So one thing to add here is that you, you, you're uh, almost always going to get faces, but if you don't have a face for the person, then it's going to show their initials. At first, I it's was like, like Buddy Rich's drumhead. You know, it's funny. Like, you know, I have a, a friend with the initials JT and, you know, I saw the JT come up on the top and I'm like, oh, they made, you know, the, the little logo for themselves. And I'm like, oh, no, no, that's that's what it does if you don't have a face for the person. Right. Which most people I do. But the answer is yes, you can disable one or both of these. Um, so you have to dig uh, pretty deep. Well, not that deep. Where you want to go is in settings. You want to go to mail, contacts, calendars. Then you will see an option show in app switcher. And then there's going to be two options, phone favorites and recents. And you can turn them on or off as, as you see fit. Because I mean, it, 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 I'll, I'll say on the on the iPhone, it, it can crowd your screen a bit. It's not terrible, but um, you, you may want to may want to shut that off. Yeah, I guess so. I found it pretty handy. It's oh, nice. Yeah, for, it's nice to be able to calling people I've recently communicated with or chat with them. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Like if I need to send a text message to somebody, it's like, uh, you know, I don't have to leave the app I'm in to get to the messages app. I just go right there. I didn't think I would use that feature and I've actually found myself stopping in like midway in my tracks, you know, scrolling through to get to my, my messages icon. I'm like, wait a minute, there's a shorter path. Even though I've already gone halfway down a path I don't need to use, it's still shorter to just go right here. And it is. It's great. It's brilliant. That's what it is. 
It's one of those things I really like about iOS 8. But you can turn it off. Time for Don. Don, sure. Don found a problem. He says, uh, I found an issue that affects the newsstand app, apparently only on my iPad. But as it turns out, I think it's everywhere. Uh, he says, I get the following error message when I try to launch either my PC magazine or the WGBH Explore magazine. It says, cannot install item. Please restart the app and download your purchase again. If I delete PC magazine and and or WGBH Explore and reinstall both, they work fine, but only the first time. When I try to launch the app a second time, the error reoccurs. So I did some digging. And uh, I found an Apple uh, discussion thread where other people were talking about this. And one of them had reported this to Apple or reported this to uh, Consumer Reports, who was having this issue. And Consumer Reports wrote back, which this guy uh, pasted into a reply there in this thread. Uh, We apologize for the inconvenience. We are experiencing technical difficulties with our CR iPad app. Our IT department has identified the problems with iOS 8, has built a new version of the app to resolve these issues, and is currently waiting for approval from Apple to make it live and operational. Currently, we have not been informed of an exact time frame, yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. So the short answer is it's going to require new stand apps. Many of them, if not all of them, are going to require specific iOS 8 updates to patch this, which really kind of sucks. I'm surprised. I'm surprised at two things. A, that uh, this many apps had this problem and Apple didn't address it ahead of time. And I'm also kind of upset that a company, especially, uh, y- you know, I mean, PC magazine probably should have tested this on iOS during the beta process. Wouldn't you think I would have thought, but yeah. I, you know, that's, that's the point. You know, we all get happy about, Oh, I get, you know, I, I get, I, I can get my hands on iOS eight for just 99 bucks. Join the developer program. And it's true. You can, you can get your betas and play with it and all that stuff. But really who that's for is these people so that they can test their apps on it and make sure things don't just crater. And, uh, I'm never, never entirely happy when companies don't do that. It's really not that hard. And they're already paying the 99 bucks. Presumably. Right, John? Thoughts? You're very quiet today, my friend. Yeah, I could have more coffee. Yeah, you got to wake up or something. (laughs) (laughs) I can't drag this thing across the finish line all by myself. Yeah. I'll I'll hit a, a, you know, we got got questions that I I answered uh, later on there. So, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm building up to a spectacular finish. Yeah, I'm sure you are. (laughs) Okay. All right. So we will move on to Chuck. Chuck asks he says i updated my iphone 5 to the 6 and of course to ios 8 battery life seems to be better than it was with my 5 uh, but i've only been on it for less than a week i have noticed in the battery usage stats which are available in settings usage battery uh that the ios app stocks is using about uh one percent per day of my battery says that would be fine except i never have used the program and i have it turned off in notifications and in data roaming. I ran it and turned it off again just to be sure. It's one of those programs I'd delete if I could. Why is it running and have I missed something? I'm thinking you might have missed something. Uh, It's possible, you know, uh, when Lucas was on, he was telling us about all the things that you can add to Notification Center, but not really Notification Center, it's to your today view. And Stocks is one of those that lives there by default. 
So if you pull down from the top of your iPhone or, or iPad screen with iOS 8, uh, you'll see Today and Notifications tabs. If you choose the Today tab and scroll all the way to the bottom, you'll see an Edit button. And in here, you get to pick. Uh, you see a list of that includes actually all of the apps that have uh, Today widgets. And, uh, and you can pick which ones you want to have active and appearing on your phone and which ones you don't. Uh, I don't have the stock ones active. I've actually got one from E-Trade active that I prefer to use. Uh, so I've disabled the stocks one and the stocks one does not show up in my battery activity at all. So I'm, I'm thinking this may be where Chuck's issue is, but, uh, but perhaps not, but either way, hopefully it, uh, it works for someone out there and it is a good place to go check out. You may not realize that an app that you updated now has something that can live there if you want. And it can be kind of a handy thing. It's it's taking some retraining for me to get used to digging in there to find kind of uh, at-a-glance data. But it's not bad. I, I put Pedometer++ plus plus in there, John, so I can see my uh, my steps as I'm sauntering about. Uh, and that's, you know, it's handy. I turned off traffic up there because I got the feeling that it was constantly polling. Well, my I didn't get the feeling. My phone was constantly polling my location. So I turned off the traffic thing to see if that... Um, if that calms it down a little bit, I'm not, I only did that this morning when I was messing around with um, checking this out for Chuck. So we'll see if it helps, but you know, huh. yeah, you know, it certainly could because yeah, I'm just looking right now here. So uh, looking in my battery usage, which is of course a new feature in iOS eight where you can go to general battery usage and then uh, it shows you what's using it. And actually I do see Dave towards the bottom of my list. Uh, it's only using 2%, but it says stocks. Yeah. Activity that explains that. Oh, so you're getting it too. Okay. So I'm definitely not getting it. And, uh, but I've had stocks turned off there for a while. So, yep. Yeah. It's got that. Yeah. But it's taking up very little again, 2%. Sure. Um, Yeah. But that does explain it, but it would. Yeah. 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 All right. So, uh, JP has something he'd like to say. Hey, John. Hey, Dave. JP from L.A. Just calling with a an iPhone 6 comment. Not that you care, but in case you did, here it is. Uh, three days with the iPhone 6, uh, and I returned it. Too big. Can't do anything one-handed. Feels like I'm going to drop it because it's so large in my hand. It definitely requires two hands. So uh, JP goes back to the Apple store, returns it, and instead buys himself a backup 64 gig 5S for fear that Apple will no longer make them that size, which they clearly are not offering. So they still had stock on the old 5S. I got it. I have a spare in my uh, drawer. I hope I hope Apple does not ceremoniously dump the 5S form factor because there are a lot of people that want that smaller size. Anyway, that's my story. <laughs> Please, sweet Jesus, cut me off. Okay, <laughs> that that request we can honor, JP. Um, that's interesting. Uh, you know, and and it it is. Um, you know, we all have different feelings on this because a, we all use these devices slightly differently and B, we all have different sized hands, you know, and, and it matters. Um, 
I, I, I totally get this that, you know, a six might seem too big to me. The six is a great size, but I also really like the six plus, right. You know, but it it's, we're at an interesting crossroads here for iOS users. And that is that Apple has stopped at least temporarily and perhaps forever stopped making the choice for us as to which phone size we want. And that's interesting. You know what I mean? Well, there are two choices now, big and bigger. No, but there's three because JB points out and, and I don't think there's any, Oh yeah, he got the five S right. I'm perfectly happy with my five S. Yeah. I don't think there's any risk of the five S going away at least within the next year. I, I think, I think Apple will continue to sell the, the five S for a while. Um, but, and, and will it go away or will Apple maintain three device sizes uh, in the phone space and then two, three device sizes in the iPad space? I mean, this, it's a lot of different device sizes. It's, it makes your life as a developer very difficult. In fact, it sort of stops us from pointing at Android and saying, ha, 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 uh, at least we don't have a fragmented platform. So, um, but I, but I, I think, Yes, it creates more of a burden for developers, not nearly the burden that they have with Android, uh, to be fair. But um, I think it's I think it's good for consumers because we all do use these things differently, both physically in terms of how we hold them, but also just functionally of how we use them. I think that's really I I think it's good that that, you know, there's some size personalization allowed now. And uh, yeah. And I've looked at it actually on Android. So the way last I looked at Android, I, I dabbled with it a, a little bit. And yeah. um, last I looked, or at least one of their APIs, um, you know, where you ask it, uh, API being an application programming interface, which is a fancy way of uh, saying a question you can ask the device and it'll answer it in some way, <laughs> or at least in this case. Uh, and from what I recall, they have actually four classifications when you ask it, uh, hey, how big is the screen on what I'm running on? And it's, you know, small, medium, large, and extra large, I think, or, or something roughly resembling that. And I, uh, I haven't looked in detail at iOS, but I, I would think that there's a similar uh, method. Yeah. Well, doing that where you say, how, how big is it? And if it's a certain, you know, if, if it classified, you know, is something that is larger then you do extra stuff as we've seen on a, you know, iPad apps. Well, yeah, iPad apps are different though. And that's sort, that's where sort of this, this, this arbitrary line, there used to be a pretty clear line between phone and iPad. Right. And that line has slowly eroded. And especially with the iPad mini on the small end of the iPad spectrum and the six plus on the large end of the phone spectrum, they're really close together, both size wise and functionally, right? You know, you, you would use them in a very similar, could use them in a very similar manner, but yeah, Apple uh, encourages everyone to use uh, auto layout, which allows you as the developer, it's, it's sort of the opposite of what you're describing, John. It, it allows uh, developers to describe what they want to happen when the screen is is either one size or one shape versus another. And then as you rotate the screen, different things happen based on what uh, mm-hmm. Apple's frameworks sort of decide based on how you've described what you want your how you want your app to behave, which is the right. I mean, it, it, it's a it's a interesting way to solve this problem, right? Because it, it allows you as an app to, app developer to just sort of describe how you want it to work. And then it doesn't matter what the size of the device is, which is cool. 
Ah, okay. So they do a lot of the uh, decision making. They oh, do. That's, they that's do the decision. Nice. Yeah, which is nice. But notice, yeah. for example, you know, like between the two devices, like on the iPhone, when you mm-hmm. do a software update, you got to hit a little arrow to see a detailed description. On the iPad, it just shows it to you because it knows that there's enough space to do so. Correct. Yeah, and those <laughs> types of things, right? Yeah. Well, mail app is different too. Mail app, you know, looks a lot is a lot different because there's just more real estate. Okay. No, I hadn't realized it was a, okay. So it's, it's a, all right. So I think you're right then in, in this case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that it is less of a, less of a chore on a, uh, currently on iOS. Than well, on and there's, iOS. and there are less devices to, to code for, right? I mean, it, yeah, we might have six, uh, uh iOS sizes to, to code for, uh, f- with iOS with Android. I, I mean, it, is it 60, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, there's, there's still quite a gap there, but, um, yeah, but again, I think they fall into broad classification. They do. You know, like that's I said, right. there's, 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 you know, three or four. Right. Right. Yeah. And that, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Now it gets interesting. You know, so, um, I've, and you saw it, John, I, I, I've had the six and the six plus I, I, I did, as I promised, um, switched from the six plus to the six and used that for, uh, almost a week. I, I switched last night back to the six plus. Uh, because my time limit on the six plus, which I purchased is coming up this week. And so I got to, I got to make a decision as to whether I'm going to keep it or, or, or move to the six. And, uh, you know, it, it was interesting. I had no trouble at all with the six plus fitting in my pocket. I had no trouble with it. Um, I mean, I really like the size of it when I'm doing things on it. One handed operation on the six plus is interesting. Um, I think Cases can make it better because uh, I'm going to try and describe something um, a case with the iPhone six plus and with every, every iPhone, you know, sort of the default way to hold it is to wrap your fingers around the back of it until your fingertips can hold the other side. And then you just sort of apply pressure in your hand and then you use your thumb to use it one handed. Um, that makes that very difficult because with your fingers wrapped around it, your thumb, you know, it's hard to get And I've got big hands. It's hard for me to get my thumb all the way across to touch my fingers. But if there were a case that allowed me to only have to grip, say halfway on the iPhone, on the back of the iPhone with my fingers, well, now my thumb can pretty much dance around that thing. One handed, no problem. And what I'm thinking about is specs, uh, credit card case. Right. Because credit cards aren't as wide as the six. So the credit cards are going to live in the middle of this thing, kind of like they do in specs card shell uh, case on the on the six, which I have tried. And it really makes a difference. Um, and and they they don't have them yet, so I can't test it yet. But I did get a case from uh, at, at the thing we were at the other night at, at Digital Experience from a company called Tech 21 for the iPhone six. And it, it's got uh, some super hoopty uh, uh chemical or, or polymer around the edge that uh, absorbs impact. The guy put some around his thumb and then whacked it with a hammer and he didn't go screaming. So yeah, it was a nice little demo, which was, which was fun. But um, in addition to being impact resistant, this case is somewhat rubbery and really made a huge difference instantly with me with using this phone because I it, holding the phone uh, naked uh, or, or even in just a, a non rubbery case I was afraid the thing was going to fall out of my hand and I couldn't choke up on it the way I wanted to. I, I had to, you know, worry more about supporting it. Um, with this case on there, it made one handed operation way easier. So it it's, it's going to be interesting as the, as the six evolves and the six plus evolves. But anyway, so I switched to the six and I didn't, 
some interesting things happened and also some interesting thing, interesting things didn't happen. I didn't immediately feel like the six was small, which I thought was interesting after spending a week using a six plus. I noticed that it was smaller, but I didn't feel like, oh, I can't live like this. You know, there was no adjustment period of, wow, this is way smaller. It was, it worked fine. Um, I had no problems using it. I used my iPad mini a lot more, um, reading on the six, not quite as fun. You know, um, it's just a little small to kind of balance. Uh, but, uh, and like right now I'm using the six plus to, uh, to manage the show notes, which I used to use my iPad for, and it's totally fine. Uh, so, you know, it, it's a hard decision to make, uh, which is why I switched back last night to the six plus because I, I really, I would be happy with either. And, and because of that, I think I'm going to stick with the six plus because I know over the next year, there's going to be a lot of apps coming out uh, as developers sort of rethink how things can work for a device of this size. And, and I, I want to take part in that. So I think that's why I'm going to choose the six plus, but it really is not an easy decision for me. It, it's not an obvious choice of, Oh, well, this one's way better for me than that one, which is interesting. It's not what I expected, not the position I expected to, to find myself in. What did you think of the six and the six plus John? Um, I didn't really use them that much. The, the six seemed reasonably size and the six plus, uh, I don't, I don't think I get a six plus. Yeah. I, I, I don't yeah. know. I'm sticking with the five for now. Yeah. Well, right. Yeah. Yeah. And the five is fine. I, I, yeah, I do find the five, um, to be a little small now when I go and grab that after using the six and or the six plus, I, I grabbed what's now my wife's iPhone five S which uh, up until, you know, what a uh, week and a half ago was my iPhone five S <laughs> and it feels really small. The screen feels, it feels cramped, which is not surprising, you know, how it works it's how these things go all right john we got uh, uh my friend derek tweeted something very interesting uh about uh google's inactive account manager which we will put a link to it's a google.com slash settings slash account slash inactive uh and and derek's tweet was tell google what to do with your account when you no longer use it or die and uh and he's right. You know, Google, it's not immediately evident to any website what you would like them to do with your account data that they are holding when you can no longer access it, uh, either because you've stopped using it or, uh, well, I guess if you were dead, you'd stop using it anyway. But, um, but Google has a, a thing where you can go through and set this up. Uh, in their inactive account manager. And it's not a bad thing to think about, you, you know, or if you, even if you just abandon an account, right, you stop using it. Do you want that data to just live on Google servers forever? Or if after you haven't touched it for six months, do you want it deleted? Do you want, do you want to be alerted when your account's been inactive for a little while? All this stuff. So, uh, so go check it out. It's Google's interactive, uh, inactive account manager. And, uh, and there you go. Right. Did you check this out, John? Not yet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because I think I told you I recently, you know, I whacked my, uh, one of my Gmail accounts. I just wasn't happy with it. Right. And yeah, I'm pretty sure 
you know, I'm curious because initially what would happen just to check it out. So, so once I deactivated it, uh, John Braun at gmail.com and then tried to send an email to it and it bounced back basically saying this has been deactivated. I'm, I'm not sure how long that stays in effect. If now it's, I ruined it for everybody named John Braun or, or, or not. Oh, like could someone else sign up as John Braun at gmail.com? Yeah. I'm curious what their policy is on that. I, I don't know. That's a good, that's a very good question. Well, I don't know. All right. Time to move on to Craig here, John. Indeed. Yeah. So Craig says, uh, you gave me the confidence to try moving from a spinning hard drive to an SSD. But to be fair, Craig's uh, questions here have very little to do with the type of drive he's moving to. It's more about uh, migrating from one drive as your main boot drive to another. So even if you stick with a spindle drive and you go larger or are replacing a drive that's failing, these questions all, um, all, all are relevant. Uh, See, there's the problem. I forgot to mute my, uh, my phone. So no, that, that, this is actually interesting. So, um, we'll, we'll, we'll get back to this question here. So I have a call coming in from a, a phone number that I don't know. And it says from your iPhone, uh, this is a new feature of, I, of course it's from my iPhone. It's my phone. That's ringing. I, I say to myself, but no, it's not. I have two iPhones on my iCloud account right now. Uh, and they're both within Bluetooth range. One is underneath me. The iPhone six that Apple lent me has a, a SIM in it that has a, a, you know, some phone number that was assigned by them. And I get this, this uh, call from this eight, one, three area code number into that phone number uh, once every couple of days. And there, it, there it just was, but it rang my iPhone up here uh, and presumably rang my iPad too, which is just out of arm's reach. So I'm not going to go check it, but uh but that that's this new feature of of iOS 8 where when you are within bluetooth range and have devices that are on the same iCloud account uh you get um you get phone calls bluetooth. oh yeah bluetooth. it's definitely bluetooth range it's not using bluetooth but it's it, it's not mm. communicating over bluetooth but it's using bluetooth to make sure that your devices are near each other otherwise it won't do it if you turn off Bluetooth, it won't work. Okay. I'll have to double check. Yeah. yeah my, my iPad rings and I'll get FaceTime calls. Right. You know, FaceTime audio calls or I'll say missed call. Yeah. No, I think. It, okay. Yeah. I it uses Bluetooth, Bluetooth for proximity detection. Oh, all right. And nothing more. Right. Because you wouldn't want your, well, maybe you would, but it doesn't work this way. If your iPad is uh, at home and you're at work and you get a phone call, your iPad doesn't ring at home. Okay. All it right. could. Bluetooth, I think, effectively, Bluetooth, you're talking 100 feet, maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure which. Of, I think it's on the order of tens, maybe uh, low hundred, uh, 100, 100 feet. Yeah. The maximum could be like 300 or something. I think like it, could, I think it could, I, could be 300. Yeah. I'm not sure how they're doing it, but I'm I'm 99% certain that it is a. a oh, okay. That well, it's using Bluetooth then. for proximity. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's within 100 feet, I would say it's reasonable that it should ring it. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. If your phone's up in your bedroom and you're down on the couch, perfect ring, you know, with the iPad or whatever. Yeah. So anyway, there I go forgetting to mute my, uh, I never had to mute my iPad because my volume on that is always down, uh, for alerts and such. But anyway, yes. Uh, where were we? Chuck, uh, no, Craig, Craig. So Craig says, uh, I formatted the new drive, naming it the same as my existing disc Macintosh hard drive. 
I then cloned my current disk, including the recovery partition using carbon copy cloner as a test. I tried to boot from the new drive over USB using an enclosure uh, that I bought for my fix it. Nice. When it came up, Dropbox needed to log in and Google drive said that there wasn't an existing Google drive uh, assigned. At this point, I went back to my spinning drive. I'm not sure if this is Dropbox and Google being smart enough to realize that they are no longer running from the disk they were set up on and behaving in a secure manner by needing to be logged back in. But I am also a bit nervous that this is a sign that something is not quite set up right and I need to fix it before I start using this new drive, the SSD, for real. Is this normal behavior and I only need to log back into the appropriate utilities or is it a sign that something is not quite right? So to go in in reverse order to answer your question, yeah, that's totally normal when you clone a drive. Um, Google and Dropbox and a lot of other apps are smart enough. They don't use the drive name as their uh, as their uh, they don't hard code the drive name in, uh, in in terms of that being what they use to decide whether everything is OK. They use the drives uh, UUID, Universal Unique ID, which is set when you format it and can't be changed. Uh, even if you change the name, the UUID stays the same. And that's what they they uh, hang their hat on, so to speak. So they're doing exactly what they should do in it. And all you need to do, like with Dropbox, you just sign back in and it will say, oh, hey, there's, you, you know, there's Dropbox data already here. You want us to just use that? Yes. And then it'll go through and sync up and make sure that what you have is the same as what's in the cloud, like it would always do after you reboot it or whatever. And then everything's fine. So this is all good. This is all normal. And everything you've done is absolutely perfect with one major thing. And that is my advice is to never name two hard drives, especially those that are going to be mounted in the same Macintosh, the same. Um, yes, there is this UUID that will allow your system to keep things separate. Many apps use uh, the UUID as they should to decide what drive is what, but some do not. And some will get very confused. Um, and you, and, and may not be consistently confused, right? Um, it gets, you know, if you look in slash volumes on your hard drive, you're going to see on this system, Macintosh hard drive and Macintosh hard drive one. And you can guess as to which one is, which, uh, you may get it right. You may not much better to name your hard drives, all different things. And it, even with the clone, you want to name the clone drive, something different so that, you know, which drive you're booting from. Like if you go into, uh, you know, startup disc, how do you know which drive to tell it to boot from? You know, how does the system know to boot from the right drive? How, you know, how do you know if you're holding down option at boot, you want these things named differently for those and a lot of other reasons, but otherwise everything you're doing is great. Just, you know, you're good to go. All good. I think. I think you are good to go. And you know, this happened recently, Dave, when I had my drive meltdown and I had to uh, copy it to a, another drive and then copy everything back. Yep. Um, I saw the same thing with the exact same programs. Is that Dropbox and Google Drive both came up and said, yeah, something's different. Because I think what happened is that because I reformatted the drive, I think, re, uh, I believe reformatting will, will reset the... It, cr uh, it creates a new UUID. Yeah, that's right. Now, you may ask yourself, <laughs> how do I find out the UUID? And I'll tell you, Dave, or at least one way that I know of uh, for, for the curious who yeah. also like to get uh, 
a ridiculous amount of detail on what's going on with your drive, if you run this utility, you will then see a list of, of uh, well, you see two levels here. So you see the drive itself, and then you will see each partition that you defined. Well, if you highlight the partition, and then you go to File and Get Info, you're going to get a list of all sorts of fascinating information about the drive, including the universal unique identifier. Just thought I'd share that. I like it. No, that's how I, that's, yeah. I, I think it used to show up in the bottom of the disk utility window, and I went there to look for it today. I'm like, wait, it's not there. That's what I thought too, and yeah, I didn't see it either. Yeah, but it's all there and get info. All there and, and lots, lots more. Yeah, if you want to get geeky about your hard drive, that's the place to do it. All right, John, you want to take us to Kevin? I think I will take us to Kevin, and we're going right. to tag team on this one here. Sweet. So let's see. All right, so Kevin writes and says, Hi, guys, I have a problem. Well, we're going to solve your problem. Is there any type of software that will take a recording, such as a WAV file, and convert it into the written word, text? With my disability, I need to have people record meetings or speeches and later have someone type it out. If I had software that would convert a WAV file into text, I would be set. Well, we're going to help get you set. Because you know what, Dave? There is software to do this. <laughs> you know where it is? It's built in OS 10. If you go to preferences, um, where the heck is it here? Uh, Preferences, dictation, and speech. There is dictation software built into uh, built in OS X. Now I'm looking on the machine I'm running on right now, and it's turned off. But it's funny because I see a little microphone here, and actually the little microphone is actually bouncing up and down because it's it's listening, or I guess it it knows that there's audio happening. But my suggestion would be as follows: so uh, you can choose the input source. Um, Depending on what type of machine you're on, there's going to be different input sources. Uh, the machine I'm on right now, uh, it lists USB audio keyboard and because uh, my keyboard um, <laughs> has audio in it. Really? Remember I told you about that fancy keyboard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow, actually. Oh, I didn't know it had input. Oh, that's, that's Yeah, really that's interesting. interesting. Yeah. It has speakers, but I guess it has a microphone because I see the mic bouncing around. Huh. Uh, and then line in. All right, so there are two audio sources here. So one, and, and then to... to activate it you can pick a shortcut like the default is you hit the function key twice and then whatever program you're in will start listening and we'll, we'll start typing out whatever it hears as uh, as text um now here's the, the thing i'm curious if this is actually being recorded on like a handheld device that then spits out a wave file or if it has uh an output um if it has an output you know, like an analog, uh, you know, mini jack or something like that. Uh, what you could do is, you know, start start the play operation and then hook it in and then set dictation to listen to uh, line in. And I think that'll, um, I think that could do it for you. Yeah. And then you tell the, the software to start listening. But if that's not the case, Dave, like say you want to play it within an audio player on your Mac, then there's, uh, then you got to, then it gets a little geeky, and that's that's where I handed it off to you because you're you're the audio wizard. Yeah, so you know one way to do it if your Mac has both a headphone out and a line in is you could get a cable that has two male uh, mini eighth inch ports on it and plug it in to both, 
and that will that will do it. I've seen that uh, done in the past. I mean, it creates a, a feedback loop, right? So that everything coming out of your Mac goes back in. And then you could set your line in as your audio input on your Mac. And uh, and and then your dictation would work just fine that way. Um, if you don't want to or can't do that because your Mac doesn't have two different ports and a lot have one that that's kind of used for both. Um, we can approximate that with software, but thinking about it in a, from a hardware standpoint is the easiest way to, to help understand what the software is going to do. There's a piece of software called Soundflower out there that lets you create virtual audio devices. Um, and it actually creates two of them uh, to my knowledge. And uh, we actually are using them for this show right now to do some uh, internal audio routing. The way it works is you set Soundflower as the output from either your Mac as a whole, or if you can from, you know, specifically from whatever program that is like, you could do that from Skype. Skype can have separate inputs and outputs from your system on the Mac, or it can be to be locked in uh, to the same as them. So you set Soundflower as the output, and then you also set Soundflower as the input and inside your Mac, it creates this same feedback loop because whatever's going into Soundflower will then come out of it. It's uh, it's both an audio input and output device, and it allows you to uh, to do this. So so that and, and Soundflower is available for free. Um, and we'll we'll put a link uh, to that in the show notes. So that's another way of doing it. Um, but as we were thinking about this, John, I I thought about a third that I think while not being free would probably be certainly a very reliable, if not the most reliable way to do this. And that's using um, drag and dictate for Mac from nuance. Right. I mean, that that's what that software is built to do. I mean, it's built to hear from, from your mic, but I believe it's also built to take audio files and do dictation on them. And that might be exactly oh, what yeah. you're looking for. It's 200 yeah, bucks, thinking, you know, but yeah, I was, I was thinking of that too. Yeah. But yeah, I wanted to go for the thrifty option. I, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I think, you know, OS 10's dictation is pretty good, but dragons is, is going to be better. Um, I know they're using some of nuances tech in, in at least iOS um, and possibly in, in OS 10, but uh, but if you want more granular control about what's going on and and more uh, the ability to control, uh, you know, how when you start and stop and all of that stuff, Dragon Dictate is, is probably going to be the right move long term for right. you. Right. You know. Yeah. And I think Nuance I think, right now, I remember, you know, I, I did some speech recognition work in the past and I, I think Nuance kind of gobbled up everybody else. And I think that's that's pretty much your. uh one of your only choices right now for uh, non-Apple uh, speech recognition software. Right. Or at least the, the one that I'm most familiar with. Yeah. That's I mean, well, it's Max. I would say consumer grade. Yeah. You know, that, that's, you know, somewhat affordable, <laughs> more affordable. You know, they, they have right. other software for, you know, speech recognition. But yeah, I'd say uh, that's another choice. And yeah, I'm, I'm certain they would, well, pretty certain they would have a file input option or it'd be nice if they did. I'm pretty sure they do. Yeah. It's been a little while since I played with it. Actually, it probably wouldn't be a bad idea to dig back in a little bit. But they, you know, they they acquired Max Speech years ago, and Max Speech had done great work in in making all of that happen on the Mac. And and Nuance was smart to you know to pick that technology and and some of those people up. So, all right, you want to take us on to Andrew, John? 
This might be the first show in a while where we actually get through the entire agenda. Yes. But anyway. Um, all right. Andrew yeah. has a question. I found the bash patch for recent Mac OS 10 versions, but none for 10.6.8. Do you know where I can find one? I figured that there are live versions of Leopard and Leopard servers still running, which would need to be patched. In addition, they mention Unix higher functions, but no list of these and how they can be shut off manually. Oh, boy. All right. So, of course, here we're talking about uh, Shellshock, the Shellshock bug that recently came out. Uh, and Andrew is correct. Um, right now, Apple offers a patch, and, and this is not unusual, but they offer a patch for Mavericks, Mountain Lion, and Lion. But not for 10.6 and it, below. It's worth pointing out that at least for me and for everyone I've asked, though I haven't asked you, so I will. Uh, did that patch show up for you automatically in no. the right? So it didn't. It's never shown up in what we were talking about last week as Apple's package manager. You have to go to their website, hunt it down, download and apply the update. Yeah, and that kind of I don't grok that. Uh, kind of bothers me. Yeah, because I was expecting it. You know, everybody said that the patch was out. And so, you know, I went to software update and I didn't see anything. And I'm like, huh? You know, I saw some other things like there's an HP printer driver update and, and some other things. Right. I've seen. I haven't seen, you know, but people are shaking their fist over the latest iTunes. I haven't seen that show up either. I wonder what's up with that. Oh, it's it's the, the beta. If you're running Yosemite, you'll get it. Oh, it is. All right. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, All right. That's why people are. It's coming in. It, that's why I'm not seeing it. Okay. It's not pretty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what people are saying. All right. Yeah. Um, but what he's going to need to do. So uh, I think the best resource to learn about uh, our, our pal Shellshock here is to go to shellshocker.net. And if you go to that page and you scroll down a bit, they will give you instructions. Now, this, you know, it's going to get a little geeky. Actually, it's not that bad. So what, what you want to do for prior versions, for versions, well, it's, it's exactly what we talked about in the past show, right? Yeah, in in five twenty one, yeah, you use a package manager. Uh, it downloads it, it compiles it. You probably have to, uh, well, I guess, yeah, you have to install, I guess, Xcode and maybe the command line tools. Um, I think yeah. that's a prerequisite for the for a lot of these package managers. That's correct. That yeah, because you need GCC, the the C compiler, to to do that. I think. Right. Then I think it's literally a, a one line operation. One, once you have all the, the you know, and, and these tools are free too. Xcode you can get for nothing. Right. Right. That's right. Um, so that's it. Um, you know, I would say the <laughs> the other answer is, um, yeah, I, I realize that, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But you, you may want to. I don't know. My policy, at least, is uh, I. I there's a point where you got to upgrade again. I realize that, you know, if it's working and you're on 10, 10, six, eight, uh, you know, then, then everything's great. But you want to keep in mind, as we said here, is that you run the risk of not getting or having to do extra work to get a security patch. Right. Cause Apple at some point is, you know, like, like here, they're like, we'll do it for three versions. And then nothing, nothing before that. Yeah. But if you run on a power PC Mac, not an option. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, there there are still plenty of iMacs out there, you know. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, That's good. Answer and I'm sticking to it. That's good. All right. You want to share Kurt's story, John, and and his question? Uh, 
Let's see. Yeah, he's got a tale of woe, I think, here. Oh, yeah, actually has a, a tale of, of, of great customer service is what he's got. And then a question. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to read the whole thing here. Let, let me try to condense this here. So Kurt writes and he says, over the years on your podcast, I've heard you mention situations where Apple sometimes covered repairs on products that were out of warranty. Uh, and a summarize here, I think, yeah. So he has a, uh, uh, his son has a three and a half year old MacBook Pro. I think it just got out of Apple Care. There was some problem that was GPU based, and uh, and he felt it should have been uh, repaired. And I guess he he pleaded with the uh, geniuses, and they said, oh, okay, we'll we'll fix it, which is pretty good. So it can't hurt to ask, even though technically you're out of Apple Care, um, and there may not be a repair program. Uh, Apple usually does the right thing, uh, though sometimes not. And that's, <laughs> that's the question here. <laughs> so uh, my son's girlfriend has a MacBook Pro that she has turned out uh, that has turned out to be an absolute lemon, which we've told her is extremely unusual for an Apple product. She has repeated repairs done under warranty in Apple Care, but it is still flaky. And I think it's time that Apple should replace her machine. I remember that several times over the years you have mentioned Apple customer service office. Close, close, Kurt, but no cigar. Well, we'll give you the cigar. Well, no, we're not going to give you a cigar, but I'll give you the answer. So here's the group that you want to deal with, not customer service. But I would say what you want to do is uh, call their main number, which is 408-996-1010. I thought there was a toll free one, but I, I couldn't find it. So there's that number and what you want to ask for. Here is the magic phrase. You want to ask for customer relations. This is a special team. They're ninjas. Customer service style. Yeah. And and their purpose in life is to, uh, well, try to help you best they can. But sometimes now I got to say I'm surprised because, you know, I had a. I had a go around where, where, you know, Apple was losing money right and left where I, I, I shipped uh, my older MacBook Pro um, to them. And I think we went through five exchanges and they were paying for overnight shipping. <laughs> so at that point, they, they definitely lost w- whatever money they made on Apple Care just on shipping alone, I would think, even though I'm sure they get a you know decent rate. But uh, we went back and forth, back and forth. And, and at one point I talked to the guy and I'm like, you know what? We're on the fifth round here. I'm like, I, I think a new machine is, is uh, I think a replacement machine is, uh, is, is appropriate here because you guys can't get it right. He's like, yeah, you're right. So they gave me basically the current model in the, you know, same, uh, range, you know, like mid level, you know, as far as processor speed and all that. And they basically did that for me. But it sounds like in this case, the people that he's dealing with are unable or unwilling well, to do that. You so know, that's when you want to escalate. You, you want to, so, so I think his only path now, unless he can, I don't know. It sounds like he's reached a dead end with, with the people he's dealing with now. See, I'm not, I'm not certain of that uh, yet. I think you need to, he had with his son's story, he asked, uh, you know, would you cover this repair out of warranty? And they said, yes. Right. Like you said, you have to ask uh, in the story about his son's girlfriend. I'm not convinced they have yet specifically like you did asked for a replacement machine. I mean, you never even had to deal with customer relations, right? You were just dealing with the, whoever it was that you were talking to for the repair, but you, you did what you're supposed to do. You asked. 
um, the machine that I, think I, I was dealing with the same person. So every time I called back, yeah. I got the same person. And so we, we had, we had a relationship sure. and a ticket number and, right. and all that. But you know, at some point, uh, because he, you know, uh, and maybe it was, you know, familiarity that, you know, he was, you know, the person handling my case, um, you know, it made sense to him or he was able to justify doing this. Yeah. No, oh, and the machine that I'm podcasting on here, uh, was a power PC, uh, iMac. And it, no, I'm sorry. It was the white. Was there a white Intel iMac? I can't remember. No, I think this was a power PC iMac. And, uh, and it had some weird firewire problems and I brought it in the, for repair a couple times. They replaced the motherboard and never really fixed it. There was something wonky going on. As it turns out, frankly, I think they all had weird firewire problems. Uh, but you know, that's how it was. And so with a repair number and you need this without a ticket number, calling customer relations is almost worthless. Um, but with that, I called customer relations. I said, if you pull up this ticket on this serial number, you'll see that I've, you know, sent it in three or four times. And they asked, they said, what do you want? And I said, I, I want, I would like you to replace the computer. And they said, okay, uh, one minute. And they went back and did their, you know, whatever they researched it and came back and says, okay, yep, we're going to do that. Uh, we're going to ship you this. Like you said, you know, comparable. If you had bought that machine today, new, here's what you would buy. We're sending it to you. Send us the old one back. And, and you know, I think they took my credit card number to make sure that I wasn't going to, you know, um, squander off with both of their computers. Uh, and then all was good. But I, I think the first thing you need to do is ask customers is ask the geniuses that you're dealing with. Is it time for a replacement? Um, and they may say yes. I mean, they may need to, they, they would need to get the manager involved in all of that. But that would be the first thing. If you've already done that and and they said no, then take your repair order from the most recent repair and, and escalate it to customer relations. I think that. Yeah, absolutely. Every time. Every time. That's my feeling anyway. It's good stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Um, you know what? Let's. I, I, we have we have one last question on the on the list. It's it's not quite a repeat of of something we've done in in the last couple of months, but it it gets close. But I think what it does is is the answer to this encapsulates how to use some of the tools that we've talked about to solve a problem. So, John, why don't you uh, why don't you finish up the show here and take us to Chad? We're in the home stretch here. Yeah. Yes. So, Chad, and I'll have to condense this as well. Yep. So, uh, hopefully, I can do that effectively here. So, um, Chad has a problem. Well, first, he has a Synology, and he's very happy with it. Um, but as of late, he's been noticing um, that in some cases, uh, even though he has a uh, 50 slash 10, so 50 megabits down, 10 up connection, um, and he has seen uh, 60 slash 15 speeds. Um, you know, he's very happy with that. But unfortunately, uh, he started noticing that in some cases it would drop all the way down to like seven slash three and pings would increase from 20 milliseconds to 200 milliseconds, which. Um, yeah, that's not good. Indicates so, some congestion. Yes. Yeah. So what could it be? Uh, and I had this problem in the past as well. I think we, we've all had it, Dave. Well, yeah. Um, so what it is, is there's some, the conclusion that I would make is that there is some device on the network that is spewing out traffic that is killing everything else. And this can happen. Um, the device, I'm sure, is not doing it knowingly, or maybe it is. I, right. I don't know. It, it could be. Yeah. But he was like, hmm, 
how do you narrow this down? And I think he had a suspicion because I think you may have mentioned in the past as well. So one thing that he's running is a Plex um, media server. Well, when he to, to, to his credit, the way he went and did this was he started pulling devices off the network, just pulling Ethernet cables knowingly. Right. right? And, and immediately realized that it was when his Synology unit was online uh, or when his Synology unit was offline, this problem never occurred. And if it was occurring and he unplugged the Ethernet connection, it didn't occur 100 percent of the time. But when it was occurring, if he unplugged the Ethernet from his Synology, the problem immediately stopped. So first right. was killer troubleshooting, right? You're, you're awesome. And then, yeah, I think he used a, a little bit of deductive reasoning to start turning off packages on the Synology. And like you said, John, found Plex to be the one that when that plug was pulled virtually, so to speak, uh, right. the problem stopped. So one general strategy um, is yes, disconnect devices from your network or your switch and see if things change. And then, yeah, so he, he and then he further isolated it based to the uh, services that he knew he was running on the Synology. You could do the same thing. Uh, you know, if you think your Mac is causing the problem, then, you know, maybe go to the sharing or, you know, whatever part of your Mac that's offering network services and do the same thing. If you think your Mac may be uh, causing issues. Right. You know, so yeah. d- like share. So, you know, the, the same place you would do this on your Mac would be, for example, sharing. You know, there's a whole bunch of sharing options, uh, screen sharing, file sharing, printer sharing, scanner sharing. Wow. Look at all that stuff. Um, and any one of those could be causing grief as well. So, you know, or, or if you're things on, I mean, Plex could do it on your Mac too. It wouldn't show up in sharing, but it would be, you know, if you're running a Plex server on your Mac, it's just another app. And so you can go in there and quit the app. See what happens. Right. Or same thing. If you're running a OS 10 server, whatever version, there are also switches to turn the, the various, uh, yep. you know, whether it's a web server, a wiki server, uh, Caldav, you know, all that stuff that OS 10 server does. So, uh, yeah, so good general troubleshooting technique. Turn things off and back on again. <laughs> I hate when that solves a problem. But then he asks the question, how can I further try to figure out what the heck is going on here? And this is where I'm going to offer some suggestions for some tools here. So one, if you want to understand, um, now it sounds like he, he grokks pretty well what devices are already on his network here, but if you'd like to you know, get the final word or get a tool that will tell you what devices, at least what devices that talk TCP IP um, are on your network. Um, there's a few tools to do that, Dave. And one here, let me, uh, well, there we go. All right. So one of the tools that I would recommend, and this is again, the thrifty option is uh, something called uh, angry IP scanner. I don't know why they're angry, but um, if you go to angryip.org, uh, you can get a tool that will basically ping all the devices on your network, send out a little packet saying, Hey, anybody there? And if there's somebody there, you'll, you'll get a response. So this is something that you could use to uh, map your network. Uh, so that's the free option. Now, another option, uh, there's a very nice tool, um, you know, costs a little money. I believe it's 34 bucks here. Um, let me bring it up. Oh, it's in the other note here. Okay. Um, Spot maps is a very nice tool um, to map your network as well. And it does a little more than, well, quite a bit more than just, uh, uh, you know, show you IP addresses. Uh, but it'll actually let you make, you know, a, a, a map, <laughs> as the name implies, which could be very handy, uh, you know, if, if your network starts growing to a certain level, you may want to have it uh, 
you know, in this format as well. Um, so that's the first thing. This will give you an idea again, you know, what devices you want to, uh, you know, if you're going to create a list of devices to enable and disable or plug and unplug, this will let you create that list. That's true. You could keep, you could keep, you could keep Plex running and start disconnecting other devices on your local network to see what it is that Plex is trying to communicate with. Right. Right. I mean, that, that's actually, uh, yeah, there you go. Anyway, continue, please. Okay. Then, now once you get to the to this level, though, then you want to see the. It sounds like he he's now at the point where he wants to see the traffic on his network. You know who is right. sending what to to whom? Is somebody blasting out broadcast traffic or, or whatever it is? You're going to need a tool to do that. Normally, that's not available, um, not easily available. But uh, you can get a few different tools, and two that I'll identify here that are also you know in the thrifty camp here. Uh, one is called Wireshark. Uh, at www.wireshark.org. Now, you'll also need something called X11, which is a, a, a windowing system. Um, right now, it's something called X-Quartz, and it's normally not uh, built into OS X, but if you try to run Wireshark, it's going to say, hey, uh, X11's not here. You want to download it and install it, and you say yes. So that's one option. That program's been out for a while, and uh, the, the one thing you want to do um, which should or, or may let you view all traffic on your network is you want to be sure when you set it up to uh, click on a box, there's going to be a box with your uh, on the network interface saying uh, go into promiscuous mode, which will put a lot of network adapters in a mode where they can see traffic that's not necessarily meant for them. Um, sometimes that may not work depending on your routers and you know how your network is set up. That's right. Yeah. Your switch may not pass traffic by your router or by your device. Even, even if the device is set to be promiscuous, if it, if the traffic is not being passed to it, it won't see it, which sounds obvious, but you know, there you go. So how do you get it to see it, John? Uh, well, there's another tool also that, that I'd like to uh, recommend here. So if you don't want to deal with the X 11 stuff and this tool, this tool I think is a pretty, pretty close in functionality to uh, to Wireshark. Uh, it's a newer tool, but it's called Packet Peeper. <laughs> All right. At packetpeeper.org. And it's a free network protocol analyzer or packet sniffer. Uh, and I think it shares a lot of the same code as, uh, as a Wireshark. Okay. Uh, the low-level networking code. But uh, it doesn't require X11. So, uh, you know, that may be a, a nicer option. But that may not do it either. You know, it also supports this promiscuous mode, but that may not do it either. Well, Boy, wouldn't it be great if there was a tool out there, Dave, that could uh, let you see traffic that's not necess- necessarily meant for you? Well, I mean, if you replaced all your switches with hubs, that would that would work. Yeah, but that'd be a disaster because <laughs> hubs are very inefficient. <laughs> and people don't use hubs anymore. No, um, it's true. <laughs> to, uh, and just to dig in a little bit here. So, so in the early days of networking, a hub is a device. And basically what would happen is that a hub would... Uh, not isolate a hub would take traffic and basically blast it out to everybody else on the network. And it was up to the receiving machine to filter things out. The thing right. is you get to a point where blasting traffic out on the network saturates the network and makes it very inefficient. Then some very smart person came up and said, Hey, you know, why can't I make the network hardware uh, be selective in that it only sends the traffic to the person that it's meant for. And that's what a switch is. And that's what, Pretty much every piece of modern network equipment uh, is doing now. 
I think that's the best description of hub versus switch we've ever offered on this show. Oh, <laughs> because it's, you made it so simple. <laughs> Sometimes doing it as an aside is the right way, you know, but anyway, yeah, keep going. Oh, well, I remember also. And the other thing is that I remember, you know, uh, uh, in the, in the corporate space, uh, setting up my own hub and the thing the hubs had, which you don't really need anymore, but the hub actually had a little, uh, like saturation meter that would show, you know, zero, 20, 40, 60, hundred percent, which yeah. would show when it was getting to the point where you're, you're just sending too much traffic on this network. Um, you don't really need that on a switch. Um, but then what we need is, is so if you can't, view the traffic in this promiscuous mode, then you're going to need a tool that can kind of trick the network into sending, uh, letting you see the traffic that is not uh, being uh, sent to you. Well, or and, sending you the traffic that is also being sent to something else. That's really what it comes down to. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and the tool is called Dabuki. Dabuki. I love that. And it's, name. and it's from our friends. Uh, yeah, we became aware of them recently and, uh, uh, they're at www.iwax.com. And Dabuki is the tool where you can highlight a device and then say, make this, a, I believe you say, make this a target. And then what'll happen is you will then be able to view traffic that is meant for that device. So in this case, I would highlight that. So you got to, you know, I think they have a trial, uh, limited functionality. And if you think it's worth it, you, you, you pay them. It's only like 25 bucks, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the, this will let you see the details of the traffic that is, uh, you know, uh, being sent or received, I guess, by any of your devices. And this will help you, you know, figure out what's going on here. And yeah, you have to deal with the Plex people. Maybe it's a bug. Um, My sure, guess so. is you've, I, I, um, I, I have become less and less enamored with Plex over time because, uh, because of its iOS app, really uh, it's syncing. If you try to, uh, you launch the iOS app, you sign up for a Plex pass account, which you pay for. Um, and then you can, uh, sync content from your Plex library down to your iOS device, which is great if you're you know, going to be traveling or whatever. Um, but it, it's a disaster, frankly, right now, syncing from a Plex server to iOS. You go on iOS, you say, I want to download this movie, and then starts this black hole operation of syncing. It doesn't just download the freaking movie. It, it becomes this whole sync process that happens on the iOS device. And uh, yeah, part of it is if the movie needs to be transcoded, the server needs to transcode it first, convert it to a format for the iPhone or the iPad, and then and then it can download it to it. But it just it never works right. I if it if I'm going to do this before I go on a trip, I have to like sync it a million times in order to know that I've got everything Um and, and so what it may be happening is a sync may be happening constantly in the background between one of your devices and, uh, and the server that would cause a lot of traffic to, um, to bounce around locally, uh, on your network. Now, if this is actually using your internet connection, then it could be that you're, you're syncing with a device that's, you know, somewhere else on the internet, but yeah, Plex has gotten kind of weird with my Synology. I've been using video station because when I tell it to download a movie to DS video on my iPhone, the movie just downloads right away. But like, like you would expect it to. And, um, uh, and it works really, really well. So that, yeah. that's my two cents on that. 
And it's so, and it's free. It's concluded with the Synology. Yeah. So yeah. you may want to either consider. So you may want to either reconfigure if it's a configuration setting, yep. or just abandon Plex and you know go with something else. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's some good about Plex. It's really handy being able to, you know, like my brother's got Plex running and Pilot Pete's got it running. And, and so if I want to watch a movie, if I want to stream a movie from Pete's collection, I can just do that, which is awesome. Um, but it, it's, you know, it's the syncing that has made Plex a real disaster. I, I know, I think they're working on, on it, but man, it just got so bad. Anyway, that's. That's my little rant about it. That's that. That's my theory about what's going on with with that device. That there, it would not surprise me. My theory about this show is it's been a fantastic show, and it's almost over. And I think I'm right about that too. I think, I think so. You know, the other thing I was going to mention. Go. I'll see if I can dig it up. I, I know there is a packet captured buried deep within OS 10, though I, I can't immediately find how to activate that. Oh, interesting. But still, now, I don't think network. it does what Dabuki does, right? It doesn't. Oh, no, it doesn't. Yeah. Okay. No, it's, it's, it's similar to the other, yeah. you know, tools that I mentioned that it'll capture some traffic. But yeah, it doesn't do the clever things that Dabuki does. Right, right. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com is the email address that if you have questions, thoughts, or comments about this show, or really questions, thoughts, or comments about anything about uh, the Mac and Apple products, go ahead and send those to us, and we will process and queue them up and talk about them on the show, most likely. We like to do that. Yeah, uh, I'm with you, Dave. The, the only thing uh, I need to correct you on is that you want to send an a email to feedback at MacGeekGab.com. I don't know uh, if I can do this for another 10 years, John. You keep getting it wrong. It's feedback at MacGeekGab.com. <laughs> 206 geek is 43.35, but that's not the only way you can reach us. How else time. can they reach us, John? Um... Well, another place you can go. Uh, we are on the Facebooks. We haven't mentioned that in a while. Um, there's stuff happening there. We will post, you know, when the next show uh, occurs and invite our. And how do they? And how do they find us on Facebook, John? Hello, Mr. Braun. Did I lose you, John? I think I lost him. I don't know what happened there. Do I still have internet connection? No, I don't think I do. So I'm going to go ahead and finish this show right here before all heck breaks loose. Uh, yeah, I have no internet connection. That's really interesting. So facebook.com slash MacGeekab is where you will find what John was talking about there. Uh, we do want to thank many, many people here. Uh, we will start with Michael Johnston. He is the host of the iOS show podcast and also the publisher of getappler.com he is the one that takes the show and adds all the chapters and all of that good stuff and he's a uh, he's a mensch for doing so so thank you so much for doing that michael and go check out his podcast uh i love that show the ios show you gotta you gotta check it out uh also we want to thank the folks at cashfly c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com for all the bandwidth it takes to get this show from us to you smile at smilesoftware.com of course with text expander touch Three and all the other great stuff they make. Barebones at uh, barebones.com. Gazelle to sell all your stuff. Gazelle.com. Squarespace.com slash MGG gets you uh, uh, signed up and also MGG gets you 10% off. Linda.com slash MGG. 
uh, gets you a free week. And Drobo, of course, with their MGG50 to get 50 bucks off on the new one. And it looks like I have no one to banter about with this because I'm the only one left. I don't know what happened to my internet connection here at the office, but it looks like we are dead. Although, well, wait, maybe I'm thinking, no, 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 we're not back online. Okay. Don't be like me. And don't be like John and I. And don't get caught. Made up.